0: Scripture reading is taken from Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I have been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kimberly. Since Easter, we've been looking at the book of Galatians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to all the churches in a region of current-day Turkey. This uh, was a region in central Turkey where Paul spent a lot of time planting new churches. And his habit back then was to plan a church and then move on. And if the church had some kind of issue, they would send a letter to Paul and ask his advice. And he would send a letter back uh, giving them pastoral advice. And in fact, uh, these letters of Paul, which are a big chunk of the New Testament, are often referred to as the pastoral letters. And because of that, they're a great place to go to find out what it means to live the Christian life. The Bible is remarkably sparse in telling us how to live. It warns us of dangers in life, the Ten Commandments, uh, have no other God before God, honor your mother and father, you know, avoid adultery and stealing and, and envy. It, it tells you where the problems occur. But it doesn't tell you how to live. It leaves that up to the free conscience of Christians guided by the Holy Spirit. And of course, people get themselves into all kinds of trouble. With freedom. And so, reading the pastoral letters is a great place to go to see what is the Christian way of resolving problems. What does it look like to live in a Christian way? Last couple of weeks, we've seen how Paul was upset. He was upset with some of the churches that he had planted because they were drifting away from the gospel that he had taught them. Now, in this section of the letter, he talks about the battle that Paul himself had to fight for the purity of the gospel. And this was the first major significant conflict within the Christian church, and it had major consequences. This was an important battle, and it's a good thing that Paul won. We probably would not have been here otherwise. So let's look at it. Fourteen years later, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. 14 years, so this is 14 years after Paul's um, conversion, after he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus. So he spent a big chunk of his life planting churches, traveling around the Roman Empire. And Paul was bedeviled by false teachers. He would plant a church, he would give the gospel, he would establish a leadership, and then he would move on. But what oftentimes happened is traveling teachers, some of them from Jerusalem, would come and they would add to what Paul had taught. And the biggest issue at this time were Jewish Christians coming into Gentile churches. Gentile just means not Christian. Everybody else in the world apart from uh, Israel. So Jewish Christians would come into a church and they would say, yes, Jesus Christ is the answer." but you have to become a Jew like me. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, therefore you have to be Jewish. You have to get circumcised and follow all the laws. And that was a constant theme. You see it in Paul's letters, and it's what he's addressing here. And so clearly this comes to a crisis point. It is happening so often and so much that Paul decides he has to go back to Jerusalem where the original apostles, plus all the leaders of the church, are gathered. It's still the center of Christendom. And there are a lot of them. You know, we know from the book of Acts that on the first day that Peter preached, 3,000 people became Christians. So this is 14 years later. There must have been tens of thousands of them. And we also know from the letters and from the book of Acts that there were different factions. And that is what is creating the problem. So Paul is sort of touching base, going back and making sure that he isn't running in vain, that he hasn't got it wrong, that he is still in a line with the central teachings of Christianity. And he takes along Barnabas, who is uh, a Christian Jew, and he takes along Titus, who is a Greek Jew. uh, Sorry, that doesn't make sense, does it? Barnabas is a Jewish Christian, and Titus is a Greek Christian, so he's uncircumcised. And it seems like Paul takes both of them as sort of a a test case. Here's a Gentile Christian, here's a Jewish Christian, they're brothers, they're they're expanding the gospel, and he takes them back to be with him as he goes to the uh, leaders. Verse 3. Yet not even Titus who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So this is Paul's problem. False teaching that add to the gospel. Paul's gospel was Christ alone. Not Christ plus the law, not Christ plus a particular way of living, a funny haircut, dietary laws. Christ alone is what you need to be a Christian. You don't have to become like other people to be a Christian. You can still be you. All you need is Christ. And this, by the way, is the theme of not only Galatians, but many of Paul's letters. He wants to keep the gospel and the freedom that it gives as the central element of Christian teaching. Others are coming in and adding to the gospel and trying to constrain people to live in a certain way, what Paul here calls slaves. But it must have been a fight. Look at verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external experiences. Those men add nothing to my message. Now it's a little hard to translate this part of Paul's letter because the grammar is strange. We saw at the beginning of the letter that Paul was very angry when he wrote this letter, when he dictated this letter. That was his habit, to dictate to a professional writer who would then write. And this letter begins with one single run-on sentence. The grammar is not great. And the grammar here also is a little strange. It seems like Paul was upset. He doesn't finish his sentences. He, he adds bits and then goes on to a different thought. And so there is a little controversy about what he, what he specifically means here. but notice he's obviously in a fight and there seems to have been a number of different leaders. We know from the book of Acts there were, there were parties within the early Christian church. Acts 15:5 says this and this is a description of this council at Jerusalem. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. That's the debate right there. This party of Pharisees is referred to as believers. So there must have been at least one other group. And the way Paul describes the leaders in Jerusalem is a little ambiguous. In verse 2 he says... I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders. It was not obvious and clear. Verse 6, and those who seemed to be important. And verse 9, those reputed to be pillars. So you get the impression that at Jerusalem, at the very beginning of the church, you had the authoritative apostles, with the first among equals Peter, whose voice ca- typically carries sway. But then you had a lot of other people, hundreds and thousands, all have just become Christians, all are trying to understand what it means, and there are factions, there are groups, there are different opinions in the early church. In fact, you get a sense that Paul and Peter themselves had a difficult relationship. Not only Paul writes letters, but Peter writes letters, and in Second Peter, Peter's second letter, he writes this: "Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him." He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them, uh, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Now that's a remarkable verse. This is Peter, the rock on which Christ said he would build his church, talking about his brother Paul. Clearly he accepts him as an apostle. He refers to his writing as scripture, so it has the authority of the Bible. But Peter himself doesn't fully understand everything that Paul says in his letters. You know, Peter was an uneducated, almost certainly illiterate fisherman. He'd never been to college. He grew up in a small little village with a very circumscribed life. And suddenly he encounters Paul, this religious zealot, this intellectual, who had been highly educated his whole life. And their meaning... Must have been a meeting of very, very different kinds of minds and people. It must have been a difficult encounter. And yet, Peter here calls Paul his brother. He doesn't understand everything Paul says, but he recognizes his writing as scripture. And by the way, I think this is a warning to many of us. I'd include myself in this. I went to seminary and I was very much engaged in the intellectual understanding of Christianity. Systematic theology, trying to unpack what Paul's letters are all about. But we must be humble about our own intellectualizing of the gospel. The gospel is very simple. Peter, a fisherman, could understand it and be the chief witness to Christ. The gospel does not have to be intellectual. And we should be careful about over-intellectualizing it. But you see here, Paul goes back and he encounters this sort of turmoil, or at least a range of opinions about what Christianity is. And Paul is fighting for his idea that Gentiles, non-Jews, can be Christians just as much as Jews. You do not have to convert to Judaism to be a Christian. You do not have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow all the laws of the Old Testament, all the rules about eating and drinking and what you wear and ritual cleanliness and all the festivals, the celebrating Passover at the temple. All of that is fulfilling Christ, and he is all you need. And Paul wins. Paul's vision of this pure gospel is what triumphs in Jerusalem. Verse 7. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. It's easy to skip over this section, but recognize what Paul has achieved here. Gentiles, that is non-Jews, the entire world, can become Christian without becoming Jewish. Culturally Jewish. With all the regulations on Jewish life that that would have entailed. Verse 6, they added nothing to my message. Paul was not required to add anything to his gospel to make it the truth. The apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem endorse the idea that Paul and his ministry with Barnabas and Titus to the Roman world is a valid use of of his encounter with Christ. it is fulfilling the core place on Paul's life and on the church. And they gave the right hand of fellowship. That is, they recognize him as part of the leadership of the Christian church. Now, it's hard to overstress how important this debate was in the early church. Because it means that Christianity and the gospel Jesus Christ and the freedom that he brings are not tied to one culture in one time and one place. If Paul had lost, if the party of the Pharisees had won, then if you were culturally Italian or Spanish or French, if you became a believer, you would not be a real Christian until you also took up the lifestyle of a Palestinian Jew. Americans, Europeans, Asians, Africans, all the peoples of the world would not be accepted as Christian because their culture would be wrong. They'd have to all take up the habits, the language, the practices of Judaism. It would mean that instead of being a universal message, Christianity would have ended up in you know little cultural ghettos in different cities and, and different countries where everybody dressed the same and spoke a funny language, disconnected from the surrounding culture. That happens, by the way, all the time around the world. Different religious traditions creating ghettos. It would mean an emphasis on what distinguishes you from other people. What you wear who and how you marry, what you eat, what kind of house you live in, what you do with your hair, whether you wear a hat or not. All the superficial cultural details of particular times and place would have been universalized to everywhere all the time. And instead of looking inside, focusing on spiritual transformation, on motive of the heart, on outlook, on future perspective, it would have all been about cultural attributes. What did you look like? How do you talk? Who do you hang out with? Where do you live? And inevitably, Christianity would have become intolerant. If you have to be Jewish, if you have to follow Jewish cultural customs and habits, then that culture, those habits, are what is godly. Every other culture, all other habits, all other patterns of behavior that are not godly are at best negative and probably evil. You'd be dividing the world into good people and bad people. Good countries, good cultures, bad countries, bad cultures. The result would just be a gross intolerance, a prejudice and negative attitude to anyone that wasn't like you. Now that happens anyway, but it would have been hardwired into Christianity if Paul hadn't won, and we would all be second-class citizens if we became Christians at all, because it's hard to replicate one culture in another time and another place. Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard to overstate this this point. If you only live in one place in one. Country, it's hard to appreciate just how a culture defines you. It's like fish swimming in water; you don't—they don't even recognize the water because it's just there. Culture saturates us, controls how we think and what we do, and what's possible in our minds. This was driven home to me um, back in the '80s. I was an English teacher down in Brazil for a year, and um, I had a girlfriend. And we were very close. And I would have said that Irosima was uh, at least as good an English t- talker as I was and probably better. She had studied it her whole life. She studied it when she was at uh, high school. She studied at at college. She was a flight attendant. She was very uh, proud of her professional language skills. It was important to her career and her future. And so she made a big deal of it. And when we were together... I would have said she spoke as well as anybody I knew. And then my sister showed up. My sister showed up with her boyfriend. She wanted to see what I was up to and wanted to visit Brazil. And so the first night, we're at a cafe, Copacabana Beach, beautiful evening. We're sitting down, first time I'd seen my sister in quite a while, and we started talking. And I could tell there was a problem brewing. I wasn't sure what it was but Ilusima's body language was not good. And after about 20, 30 minutes, she suddenly stopped up, stood up crying and ran away from the table. It was extraordinary. So I chased after her. I couldn't imagine what the problem was. Well, the problem was that as soon as I started talking to my sister and her boyfriend, you know, we were three English people, Ilusima couldn't understand a word we said. We'd grown up in a culture we shared ideas, jokes, sarcastic comments, hyperbole, references to culture and TV and movies, all the little things that make up a culture. We didn't complete our sentences. Our sentences overran each other, just as you do with friends. And to a person who's learned from the outside of language, that's just, it doesn't make any sense. No matter how hard she tried... Ida would always be a second-class English citizen because she grew up in Brazil. She couldn't possibly immerse herself in the culture. Now, I'm an English uh, speaker. I've been in uh, America for 20-plus years now. I still miss jokes, don't understand what people say. I'd say about 80% of uh, American culture depends on you having watched Gilligan's Island when you were growing up. I have never watched Gilligan's Island, and those jokes just go straight over my head. I don't know what ginger looks like, and I'm not sure the other one. Culture saturates us. And if you grow up in a culture, it makes it hard to understand or be in a different culture. So imagine to be a Christian if you had to give up your culture. Imagine if Christianity and the gospel was so embedded in Jewish culture that they couldn't be separated. Think of our loss. Think, that's why Paul calls it slavery. And it's not just individually. This happens in churches. Churches have a culture. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Assumptions that we think are just normal for all Christians are not universal. When I was a seminary, Presbyterians were called the frozen and the chosen. Chosen because they believe in predestination. And frozen because they keep their arms below their hips and they tend not to move at all when they worship. Katie Suter is a beautiful example of the opposite. Now, that's just culture. There is nothing in the gospel that says you can not raise your hands or dance around. One day, perhaps, we will have people dancing in the aisles. It would be an amazing day. Some of us would be upset, but there would be nothing gospelly wrong with it. We shouldn't be telling each other how to behave, how to dress, how to worship, how to be a Christian. We are free to be the Christians we were called as and bring with us all our culture, bring with us our individuality, bring with us our humanity. This, by the way, is the greatest challenge when it comes to missions. So oftentimes, people will go on a missionary trip and be challenged by something in the culture that they look at them. I don't like, it makes me uncomfortable, therefore, it must be wrong, therefore, it must be unchristian. But it's got nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel transcends culture, transcends countries and nation groups and people. So just to summarize where we're at, Paul, for 14 years, has been preaching a gospel, gospel of freedom. And he's seen his work undermined by people who are coming in to the churches he's planted and adding to the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is not enough. You have to add something to it. He sees it as such a threat that he goes back to Jerusalem and he challenges the early church. What is it going to be? Jesus Christ and nothing else, or Jesus Christ plus the culture and patterns of Israel? And in this confrontation, Paul wins. He continues his gospel to the world. And notice... He doesn't just say, adding to the gospel is a bad idea. He says, that's the death of the gospel. It turns people into slaves. It is the anti-gospel. Why? Because uh, Paul's whole notion is that you do not have to become like somebody else to know Jesus. You don't have to change your culture or your language your behavior or your clothes or what you eat and drink, what music you listen to, how you talk. God comes to save you where you are. You don't have to change yourself to be saved by him. The gospel is not change yourself so that Jesus will love you. The gospel is that God, through Jesus, was willing to change himself and become more like us so that we could experience that love. It is the complete opposite. Let me say that again. The gospel is not changing yourself so that God will love you. The gospel is God loves you and he was willing to change himself into a human being to come find you and show you that love. Really, the Gospel is this extraordinary act of translation. You know, the Bible itself, originally written, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. It has been translated into virtually every language in the world. When I was in India last year, they had a Bible translation institute there. There are 700 dialects and languages in india there were people at that institute who were willing to devote their entire career to translating the bible into a language group that had only a few hundred or thousand people in it and the bible has been translated into every language virtually there are still some small little groups hundred speakers a thousand speakers that it has not been translated But the Bible is the greatest act of human translation in the history of the world. And every culture that it has touched has been transformed. Not becoming just like uh, Israel, but becoming renewed in some way. But perhaps the greatest act, and I want to end with this the greatest act of translation is not the Bible. And not the words of the gospel, but the Word, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He's God. That means He's infinite. That means He's omnipotent. That means He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is perfect, and holy, and utterly transcendent. That means completely unlike us. But what does he do to communicate to us? Jesus doesn't show up as a big booming voice or a message engraved on the surface of the moon that we would have to memorize and look at every night. He doesn't show up as an angel. He doesn't show up as an army to force us to behave. How does he show up? That transcendent, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God becomes a tiny little baby, utterly vulnerable and helpless. He translates his divinity into humanity. This is how Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The infinite God becomes finite. The omnipotent God becomes vulnerable and helpless. Divinity, the creator of all things, translates himself into finite humanity. Jesus does all the work. That's the point of the gospel. It's not about what we do. It is about what he has done and is willing to do. But he doesn't stop there. Human beings can be holy. Human beings can have a relationship with God. Adam in the garden had a perfect relationship with God. Most of us are much further away than him. If the gap between God the creator and his creature humanity is almost infinite, the gap between God who is holy and perfect and sinful humanity is truly infinite. They are complete opposites. Sin is what God is not. And now what does Jesus do? He doesn't just become a holy man. He takes on our sin and becomes an unholy man. Second Corinthians says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus doesn't just translate himself into humanity and become like us. He translates himself into the worst of us. The worst it's possible to be. So bad that on the cross, God the Father looked away from him and abandoned him. What does that mean? Jesus has done all the work. He comes after us not just when we're good. He comes after us in our worst moments. There is no secret shame. There is no dark place. There is no pain or suffering, no fear, no horror or sense of dread, no terror, no single place in us or outside us that Jesus isn't willing to go to, to bring the gospel. And that's why adding to the gospel is blasphemous. Jesus does the work. And so the gospel is, you do not and cannot change yourself to be made lovable or beautiful in God's sight. The gospel is that Jesus was willing To transform himself into us, into the worst parts of us, so that we would see his love. And that's why he's all you need. He is not an example, he is a hero, he is a savior, he is the one that does what needs to be done, no matter what the cost. And that's why we worship him. And that's why the gospel is precious. And that's why we should defend it. The gospel is Jesus Christ and nothing else. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have done everything that needs to be done. All we have to do in response is say yes. Lord, protect us from diluting your beautiful gospel. Protect us from adding to your gospel. Show us, Lord, how to witness your gospel and your truth to ourselves, to our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.